Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine, and this week I'll be talking to the philosopher and Nobel Prize winning economist Amartya Sen about his life and our times. Amartya is known both for soaring up and providing big picture theories regarding the choices that societies make but then also diving down to engage with urgent humanitarian concerns such as famines, education and healthcare. Now 87, he's had reason to revisit the long and varied life for his new memoir, Home in the World. Um, Greetings, Amartya. And the first question I want to ask you is whether this is the memoir or merely volume one, because I notice 400 pages though it is, it finishes in the mid 1960s. Yes. Well, it, it is the memoir as far as that part of my life is concerned. I don't think I'm going to go back to my childhood or, or, or teenhood or college days again. But there is something to continue. It ends when I'm 30. I finish in England for the moment and return to India and I'm teaching in Delhi. But after about eight or nine years teaching in Delhi, I returned to England and I returned to London School of Economics and stayed there and then moved to Oxford and then also to Cambridge back again. So all that was not in this <laughs> memo. So if I were to do something again, then those must be covered. Uh, <laughs> but I have the energy to do it, but I have to think about it. So there could be there could be more to look forward to, but in already what we've got taking you up to, as you say, around thirty, we've got these frequent moves from Dhaka to Calcutta and Delhi, as well as both Cambridges in England and in Massachusetts. Um, so home really is, I guess, a, a, a movable feast. But I'd like to start by asking you about the one place in the book where it seemed to me you were perhaps most at home of all, which is in the very special school founded by the famous and celebrated Indian poet, and I think hero of yours, Tagore. Yes, I think that's quite right. Oddly enough, that's also where I was born, since my grandfather was teaching in that educational institution. We were living there, and it so happened that I was born in my mother's uh, residential home, 
and that was there for Santiniketan. But then we went away, I went back to Dhaka, where my father was teaching at Dhaka University. And then we went to Burma, uh, to Mandalay, and then returned to Dhaka again. But then by that time, the war had started uh, and was getting creeping towards India. And my father was convinced that there would be bombing in the big cities like Calcutta and Dhaka. So I was dispatched to the rural atmosphere of Shantiniketan, where it so happened I was actually born. But it had a very interesting school, uh, a very progressive school. And academically, wasn't a, it couldn't compete with the school I was in, uh, in Dhaka, St. Gregory's. But uh, I didn't like uh, that degree of discipline of hmm. the Santaniketan atmosphere. So even after the Japanese turned around and went back, uh, leaving the little bit of India they had got hold of, um, I had no desire to abandon Santaniketan. So what might have been one or two years in Santaniketan ended up being 10 years in Santaniketan. And from there I went elsewhere. So, I mean, those of us, including myself, who just because of the pandemic had suddenly an experience of turning into teachers, being forced to homeschool children. And we're suddenly getting a glimpse as non-teachers of the English national curriculum, which is all about grammar and jargon laden stuff. You know, seven year old children having to learn what a fronted adverbial is. And I was struck in what you wrote about the school, you know, it's it's training to make use of the freedom to reason that matters, uh, not fearing it as the rote learners do. And I just wondered whether you what you whether you had any thoughts on the kind of formulaic testing, particularly of young children, and whether that might crowd out the ability to pursue unexpected connections. And if so, does that worry you that younger cohorts might not be able to jump between disciplines in the way that you've been able to do? And they aware of the fact that I was uh, very keen on mathematics, very keen on Sanskrit. Uh, these were my two favorite subjects. But I was then planning to do physics with mathematics in college. And so uh, we, we had a physics and science courses too, which were, I don't think, terribly sophisticated, but enough to wet my appetite about wanting to do that. But by the time I went to Calcutta and started pursuing maths and physics and my objective, I was also getting very political. And for that, it did seem to me that economics was very important. Mm. Physics was. So I gradually moved to that. But if you'd stayed, do you think, at the more formal school in Dhaka, where maybe there would have been more rote learning. Do you think that would have stifled your creativity or do you think you'd have, in, in a way, school doesn't matter so much? School, St. Gregory, it's, it's a very distinguished school and a lot of people I know have been taught there to become big figures in Bangladesh, like Kamal, Kamal Hussain, who became foreign uh, foreign minister of, of Bangladesh. So I think the school was 
certainly achieving all right, whether it would have given me the freedom with which I moved away from one subject to another. Good question. I don't really know the answer to that. I, I alluded to you just when we were warming up there that I had a story about a, uh, a, a tutor of mine a long time ago who's a friend of yours, Jonathan Glover, who talked about getting the train with you from Oxford, I think, down to London and back. And he'd say after a day's teaching, he'd be falling into a detective novel, but you'd still be working on your social welfare functions and uh like it comes across in the in the the range of interest you talk about that you've got this kind of unstoppable curiosity and unstoppable energy to pursue um things even out of hours but it's also plain in even from the days when you were at school as well as being a very diligent student you're a very engaged citizen particularly in laying on evening classes for poorer children who might not otherwise get an education. And I just want to throw this in as well. This is from uh, a review of your book, which you've not yet seen by Ferdinand Mount, who's reviewed your book generally very favourably in prospect. But he does say, in Sens Cambridge, there are no frumps or grumps or drunks or curmudgeons or backbiters. Hugh Trevor Roper's Oxford might seem to be peopled by a different race. <laughs> so that's what he says. <laughs> so my question is whether you ever worry that this sort of kindly disposition towards people, which is what uh, Ferdinand Mount's getting at there, might translate ever into a certain naivety in thinking about the politics of really tough choices about resources. Well, it's a very good question and it's right that Johnson should think about it. One of the truly excellent minds I have been privileged to know. I, uh, you know, I was involved with uh, teaching uh, for children. Even when I was cool myself, we ran a night school when I was uh, upper level uh, high school student myself, as we used to run for the tribal children uh, close to St. Nicaton, who in those days didn't have any schools at all. And, and we ran that. And uh, that, of course, was very um, uh, profoundly influential on me. But, you know, I think the idea of being um, critical of, of what we are receiving uh, was something uh, that was quite important for me. Um, the name of Hugh Trevor Roper was mentioned, whom actually I did know, and I was quite impressed by the type of question that he raised. And even when there would be a debate between, say, Hugh Trevor Roper and Eric Hoff- Hoffman, mm-hmm. two historians of very different bent, I was very interested in the arguments presented in, on each side. So I think a, a kind of acceptability of um, uh, anyone uh, to come into the educational world uh, could be combined with the uh, possibility to the extent we can uh, of viewing things critically. Mm. Uh, and and uh, oddly enough, 
uh, huge in Tierra Europa. Because was also, uh, it, I don't think it's widely celebrated, uh, quite um, uh, tolerant of the argument. I remember having some argument about um, those who were rather pro-German uh, in the late 1930s. And what did he think of them? And I had a very good uh, discussion with him, and I thought he was being uh, uh, critically very open-minded in that. So I, I did have quite a bit of respect for him. Uh, <laughs> Even if he's grumpier about people most of the time. <laughs> um, now, the, the memoir, Mike's very clear, and I was really taken aback by this, just how many obstacles you had to get over to get the chance to specialise in this new social choice theory as a subject for which you eventually won the, the Nobel. Now, I'm going to, dare, this is probably a bit too brave, but I was going to dare to ask you to give our listeners a sense of what this means for the real world, because you explain very, very clearly in the book about the um, Marquis of Condorcet, who had long ago proved that majority votes could end up being inconsistent. People might prefer A to B, B to C, but then C to A in a, in, in a vote. And then you also talk about Kenneth Arrow, who's much closer to being a contemporary that proved that, and again, forgive the paraphrasing to just try and get it across to the listeners, but that democratic attempts to keep most of the people happy most of the time would be liable to lapse into contradictions so if you were to try and sum up what you did on social choice theory that, 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 that changed those results from Condorcet and Arrow, what, what would you, uh, how would you sum that up? Well, uh, just to give a one-minute background first, Condorcet was a mathematician in 18th century France, and along with people like Jean-Charles Bauda, he was concerned with the question, that a society consists of many people. And therefore, when we talk about society wants this or wants that, we would somehow have to find a balance between the uh, perspective that each of them has. And he showed that these, the most elementary rules of combining people's preferences could lead to contradiction. Like majority rule, you may find that A defeats B by majority, B defeats C by majority, while C again defeats A by majority. So that wise him and he wondered how would you deal with it. Uh, he had some thoughts on that of importance. Um, Borda also had. They were all very involved in that. They mostly were working in the, in the French Academy um, uh, or actually, to be exact, Academy of Sciences in France, and he, uh, they were pursuing that. Now, when Kenneth Arrow came in, he, he showed that it's not only majority rule that goes into that kind of difficulty, but uh, any rule which follows certain elementary requirements will. And central to the elementary requirement, he thought was the idea that society's preferences must look a bit like individual preferences. That is, uh, they have characteristics like transitivity, that if A beats B and B beats C, then A should be C. 
and so on. Now, a part of the thing I did was to uh, increase the gloom by saying that you could drop that requirement, that society having preferences like individual, and still get exactly the impossibility of the kind that Condorcet and I was doing. So it's a bigger problem uh, that I was trying to show. And after some resistance, Kenneth Harry, the kind of guru, guru figure of mine, I learned a lot from it. But after some resistance, he come to, came to accept that. But then there was a the question about how do we get out of that now? Yes, because it's, it's not a conclusion of pure despair for you, is it? That even without these very strict requirements, you're not going to be totally consistent in how societies make choices. So how do you yeah. cheer yourself up afterwards? Yeah, it's quite a, quite a um, um, uh, thought-provoking result, and I, it did provoke my thoughts. Uh, it, it began for me when I was an undergraduate in, in Calcutta, uh, reading Kenneth Arrow's book on that subject class. But then I had to move much further. And then it became clear that we have to think differently because that's not the way we deal with social ideas when we do with social ideas. It's not just majority or something like that. Um, if we say that society wants that, well, we could very easily and very sensibly say the poor people would be much better off under this rule than, than under any other rule. So in that case, you have to give greater weight to poor people over the rich. You have to be concerned with individual liberty. That became, of course, a great casualty in the French Revolution in the reign of terror where people were being guillotined right, left, and center. And so we have to, and Condorcet himself, it was clear that he will be guillotined, uh, but for the fact that he actually, seeing that, took his own life. So, it, so we needed liberty to, be, to come into the story. We needed inequality removal to come into the story. So once you bring these things in, it's not so much that uh, you're making things more complicated. These are the things with which social debate takes place. So is it, is it fair to say that you do an awful lot of very complicated maths, or Kenneth Arrow does, and then you do a twist on it, and then what comes out of it is really that you can't solve these big social problems with the complicated maths, that you need to reintroduce these kind of values like freedom and like concern for those without. Yeah, uh, these are complicated maths too, in the sense that, uh, you know, mathematics is a wonderfully valuable subject. So it depends on what the problems are, and that will adjust to it. And so, so that's the way it came. The way the propositions came to me first were in a mathematical form. But it still became clear to me that underlying that were social concerns that mm. we all had. That is, Immanuel Kant uh, or Adam Smith may take a very different approach to the mathematical Condorcet or Boulder. On the other hand, they have concerns of which Condorcet and Boulder should be aware. 
and and therefore uh, the issue would be how to bring these factors into our thinking. Whether it turns out to be uh, best done in a mathematical form, which sometimes is the case, or not, it's mm. a different issue and, and a minor issue. And so the math versus no math was really a minor subject here. The main okay. thing is to get the basic ideas right. And I think I, having spent decades working on that, uh, I got rather persuaded that the human concern that have wide people from uh, Aristotle in Greece to Cotillo in India, 18th century, the, you know, the Kant and the Rousseau mm -hmm. uh, and Smith and Hume, they all come into the story uh, somehow. And, and uh, that has been, for me, a rather thrilling uh, recognition uh, and an invitation not to narrow down your field, but mm. to broaden it, to take into consideration what people have been airing again and again. Okay, it, yeah. <laughs> you know, a remark that David Hume makes that uh, we are very worried that when we go uh, to trade globally, he's talking about early globalization in, in 18th century, early 18th century. And he said, then uh, we are being too commercial and, and there's truth in that. On the other hand, in the process of trading with people, we come to know that there are these people in Indonesia, in, in Philippines or in Sri Lanka and once you know that, in your theory of justice, you must take note of their existence. Yeah. And, and their demand. So on one side, what looks like narrowing is on another side, broadening our perspective. And I think that's what's just right. So, so in a way, that's a rather, and it comes up, I think, towards the end of the book, a rather kind of pro-globalization points in, a, in an era that's that sort of turned against globalization and one thing that's really relevant here and something that you keep coming back to from the fracturing Indian empire of you know the the, the late 1940s um, all the way through is is the theme of identity and I wonder first of all in the light um, of all of that um, I mean is it true obviously there's always been chauvinism there's always been narrow identity somewhere in the world but when you we worry a lot now about resurgent nationalism do you think that like identities are polarizing and hardening and if so are you confident we can combat that yes it depends on how we approach and tackle these issues because identities could separate people up i mean it could do uh, when I was growing up, uh, suddenly the Hindu-Muslim division, which was never very strong earlier, became suddenly a factor of great importance, only for about a decade and a half. And then it went away. And Bangladeshis or East Pakistanis were no longer after that uh, debating about the Hindu rights and the Muslim rights. They were debating about 
Bengali writes as opposed to those who speak Urdu or Punjabi. And so things could move depending on how our reasoning proceeds. Now, I think um, one of the things that I, the book also gets to that to us and is that in the, in the 1940s, really interesting things were happening in the world. One of them was in Britain, for example, with the war, uh, with the food being in short supply, mm-hmm. uh, the sudden fear that there may be salvation. And uh, as um, uh, various people, uh, Hammond and others, um, brought into the story that we have to bring in some way of making food accessible to everyone. And there came the rationing and the control prices. And suddenly, at the height of food being at a low end, uh, the level of undernourishment completely disappeared uh, in, in England. And this was because um, this means of rationing and control was found. And that, of course, gradually through a distributional concern about food and medicine leads to the National, National Health Service and more generally to the European um, uh, welfare state. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I mean, what that made possible is a sense of identity with everybody else in the society. Mm. Now, the Brits had that. On the other hand, when it came to applying it in the empire, this didn't translate between the Brits and the Indians. And so that division became sharper. And while Britain was moving to a regime of uh, severely uh, uh, diminished undernourishment, India was moving to the Bengal famine. Mm. Three million people died. So, uh, and then when India became independent, those concerns, including the factors like public discussion that can bring about that unity between people, and newspapers played a very big part. It's not well, maybe Anurin Bevan speaking, but Anurin Bevan was speaking to newspapers. So there's there's that. The odd thing is that the there have been no famine, proper famine since uh, the empire ended, and the, the means through which famines were uh, uh, controlled, namely public discussion. And, and, and media freedom and so on. Uh, they, that India got from Britain, and yet that was not possible during the empire, because you can't run an empire without a certain level of tyranny. Uh, mm. You have to keep the, uh, those who want the independent in check. So as a result, so while these things came from Britain, they didn't come in the British Empire at all. Mm. Uh, and I think I quoted Robin uh, Tagore, to whom you referred earlier, uh, by saying that India got a lot of wonderful things from Britain. And uh, the only thing is that during the period of the empire, these things 
while available to all, was not in fact made available in the empire. Absolutely. And, uh, so that's the issue, and identity becomes a very central concern. In a way, by the way, Adam Smith discussed with some real clarity. How um, serious or not, and how reversible or not, do you think the apparent hardening of identity that's going on in India today is? Because the Modi government seems to want to make it very much a kind of Hindustan rather than an inclusive state, doesn't it? I think it's a very important question, Tom, that you're raising. Because, you know, India fought for independence on behalf of everybody in the country, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, uh, Christians, Parsis, and so on. But, uh, and after independence for a while, it was moving in that direction too. But then the, the I mean, India is a Hindu majority country, but a Hindu majority country does not have to treat minorities in any um, uh, unequal way. Uh, but that came with the emergence of the Hindutva party. Hindutva is a Sanskrit word meaning the quality of Hinduism. And BJP and others have that feature. And when they uh, did that, uh, Muslims lost a lot of their rights, either explicitly or implicitly. And in fact, all non-Hindus uh, lost many of these rights. And I think we moved to a much worse uh, civil society than we had. It's a kind of society that the leaders earlier on, including uh, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, or Jawaharlal Nehru uh, would have objected to quite strongly. Uh, so yes, the problem is very serious at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, there's always the possibility that a majority could be numbed into thinking that all they care about are the people like them, namely other members of the majority, and forget the rest. And, I think uh, any leadership that does that shows a, a, a limitation of vision, which could be very hurtful to the country. Unfortunately, that is the case right now. So a bit more controversially, I mean, for a liberal British audience, I wonder whether you think there's anything parallel going on with the identity politics of the left, which is something that divides people now on the left, very much. The thing I'm thinking about here in your book is a story about the landlord, Mrs. Hanger, who's a landlady who starts off not wanting, and I quote, you know, she doesn't want coloured, quotes tenants, uh, but you end up with her wanting to dance with an African visitor and in some ways a little kind of bit of a, a champion of race equality. And the dilemma here is that people obviously need to stand up and they sometimes need to stand up militantly for racial justice. But how can they do so without losing the chance to convert convertible people like your landlady, Mrs. Hanger? Well, Mrs. Hanger was not forcibly converted. 
she thought more and more about the issue and decided uh, uh, for herself. You see, I arrived in this family as a uh, bed and breakfast, uh, uh, with a bed and breakfast present. And she was the first wife whether my color would come on. <laughs> so I wish I saw her that way. Color is very durable. <laughs> and I'm very happy that it would not uh, come out in any way. And as she comes to recognize that she thought wrong on that, and then gradually things change. She's become very worried that I was too thin. It's a nostalgic thought. <laughs> if it was ever true, that uh, then she wanted me to become stronger. So she, at her own expense, offering to get what she thought was a uh, nutritious food, namely fruit, that milk, which unfortunately it quite isn't. However, she was getting it uh, going distances to make my health better. Uh, and Gradually, she was concerned, and she was very concerned whenever she noticed she was a great dancer. She went to a dancing uh, evening somewhere and found uh, people being racist in any kind of way. Now, I think that's a change that's happened through uh, a process which, uh, again, Smith discusses very well, namely coming to know others. And if you don't know many people, at least you could see what would it be like. That's how we brings in impartial spectator. Imagine that you have come from somewhere else. What would it be like? So I think the remedy for the isolationist racism is more integration, more interaction with each other. And I think that's uh, where, I mean, if suddenly Gandhi's return from South Africa turned Indian political movement from being a, a kind of chaotic affair into an organized affair, it was because Gandhi's ability to put everyone in a way that they can treat others. And mm similar to themselves. So I think there are successes, and they're not invariable successes, but uh, there's a lot we can do in pursuing that line. And of course, people have been trying to do that to some extent, uh, and I find it uh, not right to take very pessimistic view on that, because just as there are hardened uh, divisionists from the Nazis and the fascists. Uh, uh, there are all kinds of ways in which uh, uh, they uh, could interact with each other. I just wanted a final question, if I may, on where economics goes next. I picked up one of the few things that comes across that you really dislike in the books is these big labels that stop people thinking. So in Cambridge economics, this person's a Keynesian or a Marxian or a neoclassical, and so they're not going to talk to each other properly. So I'm, with some hesitation, I'm going to use a big label, which is 
neoliberal, which is the way that people characterise economics as having gone for the last 40 or 50 years with deregulation and privatisation and all the rest of it. And it seems like maybe that is now in retreat. First of all, do you think that's right? And if it is right that the sort of post-Thatcher-Reagan economics is in retreat, where do you think economics is going next? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting question, Tom, that you're raising. You see, there's always been a concern, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm sounding like a, a kind of Adam Smithian nut, but <laughs> Adam Smith was very concerned that markets have a role and the state has a role. And it's a question of running a government and running a society that gives place, a rightful place, to the, to the state's function as well as to the market's function. And, and then combined together, you get a kind of decent society. Now, uh, the neoliberal is meant to be those who are just concerned with markets and not concerned with the state at all. Uh, at least that's one definition. Neoliberals basically have been used in so many ways that uh, that word has lost any meaning. If somebody describes another person as if A describes B as a neoliberal, all I can conclude is that A does not like B. Mm. <laughs> Other than that, I don't think we get much information from that. But if by neoliberal event that the markets are to be worshipped and, and the states uh, uh, state don't have any function, even the kind of a rather limited function that President Biden is showing right now in the United States, where suddenly the state, instead of being treated invariably as an enemy, is also being treated as an ally. Mm -hmm. So that's, in a sense, is going against what I would describe as a neoliberal, well, actually, I've not described anything as neoliberal, mm -hmm. because the word has so little meaning, but I would say that what a society needs. And that would be very important. So I think that these two different issues um, uh, demanding our attention. One is the balance between the market and the state. And that's really, as you rightly point out, a matter of serious economic analysis. And the other is the issue of how you identify with others and to what extent you can trade and take other people as belonging to, to you, uh, to, uh, to your clan, as it were. And mm. that clan covers the whole world. And I think, and that's a basic social question. So I think these basic economic and social questions have been very central to uh, building uh, uh, um, a constructively uh, positive society. And that possibility is still very much there in the world. But we have to be aware of it and bring it in the public domain. That's, of course, what frustrates and other uh, uh, places to air your views mm -hmm. to. And I think uh, that's, that was always been important. I think if the Greeks shot ahead 
of everybody else so early, uh, it was to a great extent because they were arguing with each other, they were talking to each other, they were identifying with each other, uh, and and that changed the nature of Greek civilization, and through that civilization of half the world. So I think these are concerns that remain as important today as they were. So there we have a great note on which to finish a discussion, even if it is in fact an argument for an argument going on forever in the hope of building this better society. Thank you very much, Amartya, for joining us. And on that hopeful note, we shall draw stumps. Thanks very much to to all of you for listening. You can look up Amartya's book, Home in the World, but also the review by Ferdinand Mount of Home in the World on the Prospect website. That's written by Ferdinand Mount. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.